true joy to be with you this morning to get this time together. I know that this time of year can be really busy as you're finishing up our annual year and all of the different additives that holidays bring and what a joy it is to remain committed church to the first fruits of our week to gather to worship God to pray to God to study his good word. Um, I pray that you're blessed by this time. Uh, here at Disciples Church, we're passionate about Jesus' great commission on the church to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, to teach them to observe all that he has commanded us in his written word. This is my unique role this morning as your pastor who is called to preach God's word to God's people. My job is not to entertain you. Uh, but is to help you know and understand and apply God's word to your life. And it's a great joy to do it. I'm thankful for you who make it a real commitment for this time each Sunday, that you take it seriously, preparing yourself with your Saturday evening activities, your sleep, your morning rhythms to arrive ready and humble and to receive God's word, to, to be a blessing to others around you, and have the Lord mightily at work in your life. May he continue, church, to do a mighty work in us by his grace and for his glory. As we turn to the next section of Luke's gospel this morning, if you'll grab your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 2, uh, we're going to be in just a short section of the text today, verses 21 through 24. Uh, We've just finished maybe one of the most famous sections of all of Holy Scripture and the testimony of the shepherds who get to go see Jesus, Messiah, first and then announce his arrival to those in the area. And with the next verses, Luke is going to cover a number of events and happenings that happen within the next days and weeks to come following Jesus' birth. Often these portions of God's Word can be some connective tissue that we just kind of read and under, okay, and then we move on. But my prayer is all of God's word, church, is so good for our edification, glorifying him, and pray that our time in, in these parts of the word this morning are really a blessing for you. Uh, so let's go together, uh, hungry and ready for what he has for us. It says in Luke two twenty one, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So Jesus has been born now in Bethlehem, and the first thing that we hear that Mary and Joseph do is eight days later when they have Jesus circumcised. This is in faithful obedience to the command of God for all Jewish-born sons to do under the old covenant. Uh, church, if you remember, this is something we just saw recently in the text that Zechariah and Elizabeth did with their son, John. Luke 1, 59 says, on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. The act of circumcision is the removal of the foreskin or extra skin of the male genitalia. While it has cosmetic and health benefits to fight infection and disease, uh, which is why many of us still practice it with our male children today, 
it was ordained and purposed by God to be a very important marker of those and their families who belong to the covenant God made with Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant is also known as the covenant of circumcision. It was that central uh, to what the Lord had planned for the people. Circumcision is the sign also of the Abrahamic covenant. Thus, it is the marker of Israel's national identity. If we look together for a moment, we can remember the covenant that God made with Abraham, uh, which helps set the table for understanding its importance. All the way back to the very beginning of your Bibles, Genesis chapter 17, 1 through 14. Look at this with me again. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, the kings and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. I will be their God." And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born into your house or bought with your money from a foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. It's important, church, that we understand that male circumcision was the physical or natural sign of the temporary old covenant that God made with his chosen people, Israel. It is important, church, that we also understand that this signing condition was only a covenantal reality and requirement under the old covenant and is no longer a requirement in the new covenant that we are now under in Christ. Paul is clear to say this in Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So what we read in Luke 1.59, when Elizabeth 
and Zechariah circumcised John. And now in Luke 2.21, when Joseph and Mary have Jesus circumcised and named, we see this happen on the eighth day. And we see that this is rightly and contextually happening here because they are still under the old covenant, right? Jesus has not instilled the new covenant yet. Praise God for his plan and purpose of the old covenant that would outline the way that God's people were to act and would point generations to the promised Redeemer who would bring about the new covenant that we're now under. Even in this small and what seems at times like a passing detail to read that Jesus was circumcised, Luke 2.21, at the end of eight days, it is important to see that these are details that continue to point us to something really important, God's faithfulness. For he brought the promised Redeemer, and installed the new covenant of grace that we are under in Jesus alone. In this, may each of us truly be reminded and emboldened by the testimony of God's faithfulness to do all that he says he will do. It is in his promises, in his faithfulness, that we can rest full of faith in him despite what we're facing despite the length of time that we might face it. He is truly worthy of our trust and our obedience. Now some have asked along the way, why did Jesus need to be circumcised? For he was God and without sin. The answer lies in the very fact that Jesus does not sin. What do I mean by that? Therefore, he does what is required of the Old Covenant law regarding the practice of circumcision. God ordains that his parents are faithful, that he is included in this, and therefore obedient to the law. Therefore, this is bigger than just the passing note to be made. Consider the words of Paul in a couple key places of what really is being highlighted in this Happening Romans 8, 3-4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And also Paul's words in Galatians 4, 4 and 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. To get to the driving point of why this is so important, let me quote J.C. Ryle, who says, Our Lord's circumcision was a public testimony to Israel that according to the flesh, he was a Jew, made of Jewish woman, made under the law. Without it, he would not have fulfilled the law's requirements. Without it, he could not have been recognized as the son of David and the seed of Abraham. 
Let us remember, furthermore, that the circumcision was absolutely necessary before the Lord could be heard as a teacher of Israel. Without it, he would have had no place in any lawful Jewish assembly and no right to any Jewish ordinance. Without it, he would have been regarded by all Jews as nothing better than an uncircumcised Gentile and an apostate from the faith of the fathers. Let our Lord's submission to an ordinance which he did not need for himself be a lesson to us in our daily life. Let us endure with much rather than increase the offense of the gospel or hinder it in any way the cause of God. The words of Paul deserve frequent pondering. And then J.C. Ryle quotes 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, and I quote, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them its blessings." Praise God for the humble life in the flesh that Jesus' sacrificial death in our place meant the fact that Jesus perfectly kept the law of God and does not sin so that he is able to be all that he came to do and to be on our behalf, to be our Savior and our Lord. This is the perfect and holy work of God unto this end. And with it, then we transition to that very point that we see in the next part of this verse. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. We read next, Joseph and Mary were faithful and obedient to God's clear instruction given through the angel of the Lord to give the name Jesus to their child. We read this in two specific places where this was told. Back to Luke 1.31, the angel speaks to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And then famously, the angel's visit to Joseph that we, that we are uh, made aware of in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, 20 and 21. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You are to call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
And there it is. I want us, church, to have a rich and profound understanding of the name of Jesus. Because it's so extra special when we understand who God is and what Jesus came to do. The name Jesus is the same word as the Old Testament name Joshua. Its pronouncement in Hebrew is Yeshua. The meaning of this name is very significant. It means Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is the historic name of God. So you could say Jesus' name means that God saves. If we're going to have a better understanding of the richness of Jesus' name, let us do business with both parts of what this is. First, the name of God, Yahweh. To do this, turn with me in your Bibles for a moment to Exodus chapter 3. Very beginnings of your Bible. Find Exodus and a famous interaction between Moses and God who appeared to him in a flame of fire out in the midst of a bush. Exodus three thirteen. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. What Moses is seeking clarity on is helpful to understand the system of practice, especially of Egypt in that time. You have the elevation of many false gods, many little g gods, man-made gods, god of soil, god of the sun, god of death, and on and on. Pharaoh himself considered himself a god. So he's saying among this landscape of the worship of all of these gods, who, what name do I give them? And God says, I am who I am. And in this, the Hebrew translation here means to exist. God is telling Moses, I exist. I am real. And in this, he's completely slamming the entire man-made religious system, putting to shame all these little g, non-existent man-made gods that man has sinfully erected. God makes no excuses. He gives no explanation. He's as straightforward as he can be. I am. Whether you know me or not, whether you acknowledge me or not, I am. Next, God says, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Then in verse 15, God also said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Those that word, Lord, in all caps, are the four English consonants Y-H-W-H in the Hebrew. And that's where we get the name Yahweh. Anywhere you see that, all capitalization of the word Lord, we're talking about the name of God. 
Church, it's not a name to be taken lightly, for it is the name of the one true God. And in it, he's describing his eternal reality, eternal power, his unchangeable character, his rule over everything, supreme and set apart. I am. In a world that's constantly changing and morality is all over the place, I am. When God says, I am, he's saying, I am eternal. I am the one. I am beyond and above creation. I am who I am. No matter what you think or have been told, I am. And this is really important because the deity of Christ is expressed in his very name, Jesus. Yahweh saves the Apostle John later says this of Jesus in his first letter, chapter 5, verse 20, 1 John 5, 20. He is the true God and eternal life. Jesus is the true God and he is eternal life. Church, there is no other. And there is no other way to eternal life. Jesus himself famously proclaims in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In man's sin, we want to try to make God in his set-apartness meld into a collaborative Right, but, but there is no collaborative. There, there is only false gods. There, there is only other religions. There is no other gospel. There is no other way to God but through Jesus. Some will say, well, that seems really exclusive. And I would say, yes, that's the point. Because if there is only one way and it's through Christ then we want to understand that. The fact that God even made a way is amazing. When you understand the reality of our sin and guilt before the Holy God and his grace to redeem those whom he's come to save. Hear me this morning, church, so that the arrival of the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, this Christmas is not lost on you amidst the fanfare. Jesus is God, the Son eternal. He is God, and He came to save His people from their sin unto eternal life with Him. Please don't ever let the fact that God has made a way for many to be saved to become some kind of second thought, something over here while I'm caught up in this. It's a huge deal that God even made a way. Why? Because we deserve the flood because of our sin. We deserve his right judgment, just like you would want a good judge to condemn a guilty person and not just set them free. That's what we deserve in our sin. Eternal death, his wrath. We deserve it because our sinful rebellion is against his holiness. The great I am. The good news is that God has made a way for us. 
And it's truly good news that God came to save. Listen to John's words again, 1 John 5.20. He is the true God and eternal life. What John means to remind the brethren is that Jesus is the true God and that he is the only way to eternal life. This is John's agreeing with the rest of Scripture that says again and again that salvation belongs to the Lord. Consider the historic words of Jonah, Jonah 2.9, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord, he says. Great King David said this throughout the Psalms. Psalm 3.8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Psalm 62.1, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. God himself declares this in Isaiah 43, 11, and 12. I, I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. We must understand that salvation belongs to the Lord. I love the words of the Apostle John in his first chapter of his gospel, John 1, 12 and 13. Great clarity we're given here. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Consider with me these important clarities that John offers. Salvation is not of blood, he says. He's not talking about sacrificial blood there. He's talking about blood of, of family lineage, heredity. Those who are saved are not saved because of who their family is. Romans 9, 8, this is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as his offspring. Just because someone was born of the heritage of Israel does not mean that they were part of God's elect, is Paul's point. No, it's those whom God has chosen, of which some are Jews and Gentiles are his people, those who will be saved the children of the promise, not the lineage of the flesh. John continues, he says, Salvation is nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. The Bible teaches clearly that we are reborn by God's sovereign hand because the will of the natural man is opposed to God. My will will never choose God left alone. Why? Because I'm enslaved to sin. Romans 8, 7 through 8. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Jesus teaches that the flesh left to itself only chooses sin, never chooses God unless the Holy Spirit gives it new life. John 6, 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Many people, including myself, grew up in churches where we were taught that we are free enough to choose God and believe in his gospel. The problem with this line of thinking is Scripture. It was my own journey of reformation. Not that anyone pulled me aside and said, you're misunderstanding. It was just... 
continually running into this mighty truth that salvation belongs to the Lord. That I'm not free as man wants to assign freedom to an enslaved will. No, I'm enslaved to sin outside of God's intervention through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says clearly in John 8, 34, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Man's will, what we choose, is sin, unless freed by God. Now, do we make our own choices every day? Absolutely. It just means that while I'm free to choose what I choose every day, I will act according to my will, my enslaved will, my, my enslaved natural flesh to choose sin. Right? Paul gives this very clear indictment on, on our status prior to salvation in Ephesians 2.1, that we were dead in, the trespasses, in our trespasses and sins. The point is that I'm dead spiritually. I'm incapable of faith or life with God. Right? I'm not sick. I'm dead. Right? Our hearts were blind, incapable of seeing the glory of Christ, incapable of longing for him, definitely not choosing him. What is dead must be first made alive. This is why John says, We were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Church, it's so that I have nothing to boast in. So I don't arrive and say, thank you for all that you've done. And I'm sure really thankful that I chose you. I accepted you. I No, Scripture is clear. I will have nothing to boast in before him. I'm only there all because of God. Even the faith I exercise, according to Scripture, is a gift from God. And what a joy it is to climb into this truth, to begin to understand it biblically, not according to our tradition, our upbringing, even our preferences. And that's the desire that we have convincingly here at Disciple Church. We want to believe and practice what God's Word gives us. Thankfully, along the way of that journey, we have confirmed that what we're seeing is what the historic confessions teach. And God has done a mighty work in and among us. The only way that we are saved is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the Holy Spirit's work to awaken our hearts that we would see our sin, confess it, and turn to Jesus and trust him to be our Savior and our Lord. The vital question before each of us today is, are you utterly desperate for and committed to Jesus? to be not only your Savior, but the Lord of your life. A lot of people have found their way into church or found their way to the Scriptures and been convinced that I, I can just do something or hang my hat on something to get some fire insurance, to get saved, but then live my life the way I want to. No evidence of really being changed. No. True faith, according to Scripture, will produce Conviction of sin, ongoing repentance from sin, maturing fruit in the Lord. That as Paul, who writes much of the New Testament, constantly wants to identify himself with his favorite title as a joyful slave of Christ, that he understands that his greatest joy in salvation was to serve Jesus. No longer himself, 
his own ideas of wishes of his flesh, no longer the legacy of only what's on this earth and what he could build, but to build what would honor the Lord. Steward it well. Listen to the Apostle Peter, who's preaching before the council and the elders in Acts 4, 10 through 12. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus. If you're here today and you are still in your sin, you are still the Lord of your own life, despite whatever background you have, things you've been through, time you've spent in church, I pray it is God's will to give you eyes to see and ears to hear that you would genuinely see the depth of your sin before holy God and confess it openly and honestly to him. And to see that Jesus has fully paid for that so that you are forgiven. God has worked in you to give you faith in Jesus, which means you now long to live the rest of your life for him, according to his word, for his glory. that you would not only trust your life to Jesus, but testify of his greatness the rest of the days he gives you until glory. That you would testify that God saves and that he saved you from your sin. Jesus says in Mark 2, 15 through 17, something really important. And you need to do business with it today. Because if you don't get your sin correct, then you won't get the Savior correct. Right? It's the thing of Spurgeon who famously said, he who, who does not understand sin does not understand the Savior. Mark 2, 15 through 17. As he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him, and the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus heard it and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. People who do who are well do not need a doctor. People who are righteous don't need a savior. But all those of us who are sinners, which is all of us who fall short of the glory of God, need a savior. The good news is that God the Son took on flesh to save sinners. And his name is Jesus. It's the greatest gift you could ever be given. Romans 6.23 says it so well. The wages of sin is death, 
that I rightly deserve death. I earn death as my wage because of my sin. Not my sin as far as how I stack up against other people, but my sin against the holy, perfect God. That he cannot have fellowship and union with those who are against him, who are full of sin. I earn death because of my sin. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have eternal life because of Jesus through Christ. Church, we have much to be thankful for. Praise God for Jesus. Praise God that he chooses to save and that he made a way for us to be saved. The scary thing is some of you here today, you think you're doing okay without him. Or you'll get to these things later. You look around at your life, you're like, I'm doing pretty good compared to others. I like how I feel about it. Maybe like the, the religious elite of that day who critiqued Jesus, you think that you and God are in a pretty good place. You see the good things that you're doing. The Pharisees and the religious elite would not accept the assessment that Jesus gave them. They would not acknowledge that they were prisoners of sin, that they too were the ones sick, that they were the sinners in need of a savior. They loved to think that they were doing well. But Jesus clearly came to say he doesn't come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. There is never, there will never be salvation, never be the forgiveness of sin, never will there be eternal life for anyone who thinks he can stand before the holy God without the advocate, Jesus Christ, to fully represent them. For those of you who are here today, I pray that you see the love and the humility of God the Son to put on flesh so that we could be saved, we who were dead in our sin, and that it humbles us. And it's the reason why we sing. My prayer for many here and first service, the room full and with many children and youth of our congregation. My prayer is not only for those of you who are here, uh, who are adults, who are unbelieving, but also for our children, right? Who many of them are sitting here every day, every week, right? Sometimes you might look around the room and go, how many unsafe people are really in this room? And I would say every Sunday there's a lot, right? We have many of our children who have not professed faith in Christ. And even our children would see our sin and trust their lives fully to Jesus and be saved. May it be God's will. Lord, do your work in your time among those whom you will save. We thank you for Jesus. This is truly amazing news. Why? Because God saves. His name is Jesus. Amen.
Look with me at the next part of our passage this morning as it testifies what this new family does next. Luke 2, 22 through 24. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, are testified here to have been pious, law-abiding Jews. How do we know that? Because they continually do what the law of God calls them to do. They do it faithfully. So next, they make the journey from Jerusalem to Jer- from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to fulfill the law of purification. The purification ceremony was to happen 40 days after the woman gave birth to a boy. Um, There are specifics given as to why these things happened when they did. The circumcision of the child, of the young male child, could not happen until the eighth day, as we saw, as we've heard prescribed. Why? Because there is a purification that the that the woman had to go through for the first seven days. We see all that spelled out in Leviticus 12. Turn there with me for a moment. Let's understand God's old covenant law related to these things to help really shine a light on the faithfulness of Mary and Joseph in these things in our text. Leviticus 12, 1 through 8. says this, The Lord, do you notice something unique there? Capital L-O-R-D. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Lamb for burnt offering, pigeon or turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law of her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves and two pigeons, one for the burnt offering, the other for the sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean." So the Lord in the Old Covenant, his perfection and wisdom has designed some ceremonies here, some processes to be taken by the woman who gives birth. 
Thankfully, Mary and Joseph are faithful to the Old Covenant law and honor the Lord by obeying these things. In addition to making the sacrifice required for Mary's purification, they also fulfill the command to present the child to the Lord. Right? So they, they handle that business properly according to Mary's purification. But notice with me in the, what Luke reports, Luke 2, 22-23. When the time had come for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. In the Exodus, we read of the command to present the firstborn to the Lord. Exodus 13, 1 and 2. The Lord, Yahweh, says to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. So we see a commitment, a consecration of the firstborn to the Lord. This falls in line with our ongoing practice, church, of bringing and consecrating and committing our first fruits to the Lord, of the income the Lord's provided us. We joyfully, generously, regularly bring the first fruits of what he's entrusted to us for the work of the gospel, the making of disciples, the continuing of his holy work through the local church. This is how we testify that the Lord is first in our lives, right? I, I only budget and spend what is remaining. I trust him with what that's going to be. I faithfully thank him and acknowledge him for what he's first provided, the income he's given me. Church, all of our life is to be first and foremost committed to the Lord. And this narrative even regularly even points us to the fact that our children are not outside of this. While the old covenant practice is no longer required of this presentation, because we're now under the new covenant, this is a ceremonial thing that's, that's done away, we must understand, church, that our children ultimately belong to the Lord. And that we are given a high call to raise them, nurture them, teach them, discipline them for His glory and their good. One of the things that Luke omits here among these ceremonies, the purification for the woman, the presentation to the Lord. One of the things that's, that's a part of this in the Old Covenant that Luke does not testify of is the pain of a ransom or redemption price for the firstborn that opens the womb. We read about this in Numbers 18, 15, and 16. Consider that with me for a moment. Everything that opens the womb of all flesh, whether man or beast, which they offer to the Lord, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. And their redemption price, at a month old, you shall redeem them. And fix at five shekels in silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 gris. What we don't know is if Mary and Joseph paid these five shekels for the redemption price for Jesus, who's the first one to open Mary's womb. That omission from this testimony doesn't mean they did it or didn't do it. Right? We want to be faithful to understand and believe what Scripture gives us and not add layers of conjecture. I really, I really think it was this. We just need to accept what we're not told. But 
So, so hear me clearly on that. It is interesting to consider both possibilities. Do that exercise with me for a second. First, it would make sense that they did pay it, even though they were extremely poor. Why? Five shekels in that economy was a lot of money. Why would it make sense that they would pay it? Because all of their testimony continues to be of great obedience. They're pious people who are faithful to honor the Lord's commands, right? Think of the obstacles this couple's overcome, right? Any of you who walked 100 miles when you were grossly pregnant and then gave birth, right? I mean, we don't do this stuff. They've been faithful through and through to these laws given, whether by governors or the Lord himself. It would also make sense why in this particular instance they did not pay this redemption price. Why? Because Jesus is holy and therefore no need of redemption or ransom. Right? In other words, Jesus is eternally holy and fully one with God. There is no gap to close. There is no ransom to pay. There is no redemption to be had in his life. And we can say, praise God. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Praise be to God. Either way, we are given a very radical view of Mary and Joseph's obedience and faithfulness in what Luke does tell us. See with me, church, a family of very little means. How do we know this? Also by the context of what's reported here. What did they do in obedience to the law? They gave a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. And what was God's prescription in the Old Covenant law for when you would do that? When you couldn't afford the lamb. It is in this detail that we're once again reminded of two things that I wanted to bring to attention this morning in closing. One is how much I pray that we growingly recognize the details of the testimony of Christ at Christmas. And that this big and lasting birthday party really is about the one whom we celebrate. I've constantly had a visual in my own journey of being sure that in Christmas time I'm not at his party and paying no attention to him. When I read the passage about a pair of turtle doves, what did you first think of? A song. A historic, goofy song about a bunch of birds. And a love who gave her bow a bunch of birds and therefore had a pretty messy house probably. <laughs> On the second day of Christmas, my true love gave to me two turtle doves and a partridge and a pear tree. My prayer is that when we hear these little details that are actually related to Christ and his birth, in the lights, in the songs, in the lyrics, in the experiences of Christmas, that it really points our heart to Jesus, the one 
for whom we really celebrate the birth of the Messiah. May the name of Jesus be celebrated and worshipped. The second thing that this detail brings for us is a real joy again, and that is that Mary and Joseph offer the turtle, the two turtle doves and the, or two young pigeons instead of the lamb because of the magnitude of the lowliness and humility that the Lord has ordained for Jesus' life. Right? We want so bad to give our kids a great upbringing and experience and all these things, but Jesus had so little to nothing. I mean, just in the means of his arrival, the lack of fanfare, the basic cloth that he was wrapped in instead of the robes of kings, the, 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 the trough he was laid in, the, the people that he was associated with, the lack of announcement worldwide, the, the poverty of his parents, right? That would continue. Jesus said later, foxes have holes, birds of the nest have birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He made clear in Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And in these things we see that detail of Paul in Philippians 2 7 once again, that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Praise God for his humility, his sacrificial love in this for us, those that he came to save. John 15, 13, the haters read it earlier. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And as they read earlier in that passage, he calls us friends. God saves. It is free to us and so costly to him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. May we forever praise his glorious name. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time together in your word the joy it is to have this opportunity to, to study and to preach, to have even your word in our language, to, to meditate on these things. And, and I'm just, like I began the hour, just grateful for a people who are growingly devoted to knowing you according to your word, to being um, reformed and refined in our understanding of that word, readied and humbled to, to honor and obey it, to fulfill what you are doing in our lives the testimony of the gospel and the making of disciples, the, the sacrificial love of others who do not deserve it, the forgiveness of others who do not deserve it. Lord, what a work you are doing in and among us in these days. We rejoice in that. Thankful, Lord, for the fact that you save you've made a way to save and that you've accomplished that in Jesus and that according to scripture, you are saving those whom you have elected from before time in your perfect time not just from one tribe but from every tribe tongue and nation not just from one generation but many 
that you've ordained that we're a part of that in this season. And so, Lord, I pray we would be faithful to it. The testimony of Jesus' name, the praise of Jesus' name would be on our lips. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. God most high in a, laid, in a major laid, great and glorious. Love has come to us. May we join now with the host of heaven as we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's